0: Been looking forward to today, First Peter chapter four, and I want to talk to you today, church, about how to prepare for the end of the world. We're going to get apocalyptic up here first. This morning, how to prepare for the end of the world? From 2011 until 2014, the National Geographic Channel, Nat Geo. Uh, produced a reality TV show, you may have seen it, called Doomsday Preppers. Anybody see this show? Anybody featured on this show? Okay. The program profiles various survivalists, or preppers, who are preparing to survive the various circumstances that may cause the end of civilization, including economic collapse, societal collapse, electromagnetic pulse, or the zombie apocalypse. The quality of their preparations is then graded by a consulting company called Practical Preppers who provide analysis and recommendations for their improvements. Okay, so I watched a couple of episodes. I remember being struck watching one episode. It was actually a trailer for a guy named Doug. Doug was out in Kansas And uh, Doug had built, for his preparation, he had built a series, a network of tunnels, right? His thing was go underground. So he had this sort of six by eight sort of hole in the ground. And he called these underground tunnels, he called them his spider holes, spider holes. And he showed how when calamity came, he would go into the six by eight hole in the ground, which looked a lot like a grave to me. But anyway... uh, (laughs) He would cover himself up with camouflage and camouflage the piece of plywood. It was unclear how he planned to camouflage the plywood while he was... At any rate, uh, he had all this thing, and there's this poignant moment where he looks right at the camera as they're trying to sell this series. He looks right at the camera, and he says, dead serious, he says, When survival's the goal, it's into the spider hole. And he, like, slides this thing up. Um, So the show had some critics. Uh. (laughs) <laughs> and one of the, the biggest critique was that it did more harm than good. Because it, it said it's making light of people who are pretty extreme. And it treated the prepper movement as fringe. When in fact, it's probably wise to put some things away. And, and it shouldn't be such a fringe movement. But it made preppers look extremist. And preppers were probably considered extreme. You know, stockpiling weapons and food and supplies. I keep saying were considered extreme used to be considered extreme. Preppers were formerly considered to be on the fringe until what? Till 2020. That's exactly right. Yeah, everybody's making fun of Doug till you're buying coffee filters to use as toilet paper. Then <laughs> all of a sudden, Doug doesn't look so dumb. Yeah, nobody's laughing at Doug in his spider holes now. Now, I will leave it to you to determine how much prepping you want to do. It is not my job to teach you how much prepping, end times prepping you want to do, and it's certainly not my job to make light of any survivalist or someone who's into the prepping movement. No, no, that's not it at all. My job is to tell you how the Bible says you are to prepare for the end of the world, and the answer may surprise you. It's right here in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. 1 Peter 4, 7. How does the Bible say we should prepare for the end of the world? So I'm going to give you a tutorial on how to prepare for the end of the world from the Bible's perspective. You ready? 1 Peter 4, 7 makes no mistake about it. The end of all things is at hand. It's here. What did Peter mean? Peter didn't think in terms of days and dates. He didn't think in terms of kings and kingdoms. Peter thought in terms of redemptive history. Now follow me. When it comes to redemptive history, what what box is left to check? There's only one. In terms of redemptive history, it's all in the past, except one thing. Like, the end of all things is at hand. Uh, 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 Creation, check. The fall, done. The call of Abraham, check. The exodus of God's people out of Egypt, check. Into the promised land, check. Into exile in Babylon, check. Return from exile, check. All this is prophesied. What else is prophesied? The Messiah, check. Jesus has come. He has lived out his ministry. He has died. He is risen again, check, 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 check. He has ascended on high, and there's only one promise remaining. He's coming back. When? Somebody's phone went off. I thought it was it. I thought that trumpet. Oh, man. If that trumpet, like one day, you know. I may not get to the end of this sermon. Why? Because that trumpet may sound. Peter was 30 years into, okay, okay. Uh, after the ascension, then the Holy Spirit was promised. The Holy Spirit came down at Pentecost. Check. That inaugurates the church age. That's it. It's a three-act play. Act one, act two, and we're sitting here in act three. And in a minute, the curtain could drop. Peter had been at it for 30 years in the church age. We've been at it 2,000 years. So I don't know when the end is, but it's at hand. And it's every bit, if it was true when Peter wrote it, is it not true now? He is our soon coming king. We have got to be ready. As C.S. Lewis says, when the author of the play walks onto the stage, the play is over. And we're a heartbeat away from eternity. So Peter's saying, do the math. All the chapters in redemption history are written except one. So the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, here we get to the good stuff. Therefore, what do you do? I mean, apocalyptic preaching. The end is coming. What do you do? I thought about preaching with one of those sandwich boards, you know, those old-fashioned. The end is here, right? It used to be that angry prophet. Now people, they get it. The end is at hand. Therefore, therefore, what? Therefore, into the spider hole. No. No. Therefore, grab some ammo, climb up a mountain, and wait for the fireworks. Therefore, get an old school bus and gut it and fill it with oxygen tanks and MRE rations, canned goods, and water, and bury it in the ground. Some of you are like, that's a good idea. I hadn't thought of an old school. You're missing a point. No, the Bible says the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Well, that's a little anticlimactic. I mean, Nothing in here about a weapons cache, (laughs) missile silos and safe rooms and pallets of food. That doesn't look like a network of spider holes. The Bible says step one in how to be ready and how to prepare for the end of the world is keep calm and pray. For you note-takers, I'm going to give you several steps to prepare for the end of the world. You'll need this note. (laughs) Step one is pray. Now, is prayer anticlimactic? That's how we often think of it. Prayer. Yeah, wah, wah. I know, Christians are supposed to pray. Whoa, whoa, unpack that for a second. He says, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Not so that you can store up a bunch of food and ammo or riches, but for the sake of your prayers. In other words, keep a calm and clear head so you can pray. Why? What is prayer? What's at the heart of prayer? Isn't the heart of prayer? God, let your will be done. What was the heartbeat of the prayer, of the Lord's prayer? When he taught his disciples to pray, when he taught us to pray, what was at the heartbeat of that prayer? Was it not, let your will be done. Let your Kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Fundamentally, at the heart of prayer, you're praying, Okay, God, h- how things happen in your kingdom, which is somewhere right now. Your kingdom is ultimately going to come. When that trumpet sounds, it's going to come in fullness. But we can get little snippets. We can get little previews. We can get a, a, a trailer of coming attractions based on how Christians live now. So if we can take a little bit of your kingdom values and bring them now. You know how your will gets done on earth every day, God? Well, we'd like your will, like, I mean, I mean, sorry, your will gets done in heaven. We'd like your will to be done on earth that way. Let your will be done on earth. Let your kingdom come. Uh, uh, you're, you, when you're praying, right? What are you doing? You're, you're, uh, uh, how do I say this? Preppers, preppers, a prepper's desire is to keep this earthly life and somehow preserve it and bring it safely into the next world. The followers of Jesus do it backwards. They say, let's take the lifestyle of the next world and bring it here and now to earth. Let me say it this way. A prepper's chief concern is to bring a little bit of this world into the next one. A Christian's chief concern is to bring a little bit of the next world into this one. That is, that is cataclysmic prayer. That is apocalyptic prayer. You may not think it's anything fancy, but when you pray like that, you know what you're saying? You're saying, God, can't seem to get along with my coworker. There's no peace in our relationship, and we need peace. And I, and I look at your, your kingdom of heaven, and the kingdom of heaven is filled with peace, and there's no peace here. So God, take some of your coming kingdom peace and drop it in this kingdom here and now. Or, Lord, there's no justice. I'm praying, I'm praying against racism, or I'm praying against some injustice that you see. But there's perfect justice in your kingdom, Lord. So let me get some of that perfect justice, God, and, 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 and let your perfect justice happen here and now. Or there's no health. This person is sick, and they need a miracle. Oh, but there's perfect health in your kingdom. So, so let me get a little bit of that coming kingdom health, and let's get it here and now. You see what you're doing? You're, you're bringing a little bit of the next world here. Chief concern. It doesn't mean you're not. It doesn't mean you shouldn't have. You know, go to Sam's Club and buy some extra non-perishables. Fine, but the chief concern is not that. The chief concern, and how do you bring? How could you do that? How do you bring coming kingdom values into the current kingdom? Prayer. Prayer. And 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 listen. Don't kid yourself. Don't don't. Because uh, there's going to be haters that. You know, a, a secular humanist or an atheist, they might watch an episode of Doomsday Preppers and they might scoff, guys like Doug in his spider hole. And they might, come to a, they might come to a church service like this where we're taking the Lord's Supper and they might laugh and they might scoff. Every, but, but don't kid yourself, everybody's, everybody's a prepper. Everybody's prepping. Everybody. You may, be, you may be prepping in a different way, but everybody's looking for what? They're looking for comfort and safety and ultimate security. So what, you're going to find that in a bank? You're going to mock Doug and you're going to mock the church, but you're looking for it in a big pile of money or power or popularity? How's that going to work out for you? How are you going to bribe God on the day of judgment? you going to buy him off? It's easy, especially in a small town, to think, well, but I know people, I know people. Who are you going to impress that you know with God Almighty on that day? You think you're going to big time the Lord of glory? Yeah, you don't know who I know. Yeah, I do. I made him. No. No, there's going to be humility on that day. And there's a need to prep. But everybody's prepping. And Peter here says, pray. Um, Prayer, I must confess, is one of those things in my own spiritual life and the life of both the churches that I've been honored to pastor in my ministry. Prayer is one of those things that is the easiest thing in the world to talk about. It's just hard to do. Uh, uh, Prayer is kind of... Prayer is like, it's kind of like the Kentucky Derby. It's like all this buildup, so much buildup all day long. We're talking about for like a two-minute horse race. You know what I'm talking about? So we talk about prayer, and we, we read devotions about prayer, and we get fired up about prayer, and then we romanticize prayer. Oh, sweet hour of prayer. And by hour, we mean about 39 seconds. It's all this buildup. And what, like, Kentucky Derby is like two minutes of horse racing. The rest is like, look at these hats. Prayer's that way. Uh, like, the, like, the, like the ball drop at uh, uh, New, uh, New York City on New Year's Eve. That, that party starts at noon. And for 12 hours, it's Ryan Seacrest and some D-list celebrities singing up there. For what? 10, 9, 8. It's all this buildup. But there's 10 seconds of actual what you, what you tune in to see. If you're not careful, prayer becomes that. Prayer becomes something we talk about. And something we know we should do. and something we read devotions about. And I promise, we, we do. We romanticize it. We think what a lovely idea prayer is. He says, don't do all that. Actually pray. If you need some structure to help you pray, m- many of us think through uh, and, and were taught this years ago. Maybe you were. Acts. You know the book of Acts? A-C-T-S. Simple structure for your prayer. Spend some time in adoration. That means praise. Confession. Confessing your sins to the Lord. Thanksgiving, A-C-T, Thanksgiving. And the S is supplication. It means asking the Lord for what you want and for what other people need. Interceding, right? Supplication. And that can give framework to your prayers. If you need a little more scaffolding, sign up for an hour. Call the church office and sign up. You know we have a prayer room. And people sign up for an hour. You take an hour. Many of them do it every week. And you go to this room and they've got this big binder and it teaches you like, some, some ways to pray. You don't have to follow it. There's nothing legalistic about it. You just spend a sweet hour of prayer Interceding mostly for missionaries and the needs of the church and for outreach, and uh, that more people will come to faith. It's a beautiful way to spend an hour. Uh, or on, every Wednesday at 6 o'clock, come and join in intercessory prayer. We spend the bulk of our time. It's not a Bible study. It's not me sermonating. It, 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 it's prayer. We intercede. We pray. Uh, why? This is cataclysmic stuff. I really believe we're bringing next kingdom values into current kingdom. I look at that prayer list, and every time we go to prayer, I think we're about to turn today's prayer requests into next week's praise reports. Cataclysmic stuff. So pray. What else can you do to prepare for the end of the world? Well, this won't be surprising. Pray. Step two, love. Love. You say, where do you get that? Verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Above all means literally before all things. Of all the Christian virtues, love is the MVP. Love deserves all the media's attention. Love is supreme. Over and over in the scriptures, it talks about spiritual gifts. But it always centers around love. It basically says over and over in different ways that love is the controlling factor that makes your spiritual gifts work right. And without love, they're not going to work right. Without love, you're just a, 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 you know, you you may prophesy, but you'll just be like a clanging gong or a crashing cymbal. See, without love, it doesn't work right. Love is the controlling virtue that makes all the gifts function. Stuart Briscoe tells a story of when he joined the Marines, he was given a huge pile of equipment and he was utterly and helplessly confused. Couldn't figure out where everything went and scared to death and people were yelling at him He didn't know where anything went. So his commanding officer told him one thing, get your belt on perfectly. Apparently, he said, if you'll focus on that, if you'll get your belt on perfectly, once your belt is right, Every piece of equipment somehow fits on your belt or attaches to it. If you get your belt on right, everything else will fall into place. Love is like that. Get love right, and all those other spiritual gifts are controlled by that. But say you're not into the Marines. Say you're not into that illustration, and you need some other way to understand that love is the controlling factor. Well, for you computer geeks... Imagine you have a set of data drives arranged in a RAID configuration on a network attached storage. Love is the RAID controller, without which all that data is inaccessible across the NAS. I just googled that. I have no idea what any of it means, but uh, you know, I try to be—you uh, know—all things, all people, you know. And I thought maybe that would help somebody. Um, <laughs> that makes sense. I've got it. <laughs> Love is supreme, but it's not easy. It comes at great effort. That word earnestly is a great word. It means striving, straining, stretching. It carries the image here of a sprinter. You know, in the 100-meter dash, when it's a close race and you get to the tape, you're straining, you're leaning into the tape. That's what that word earnestly means. It means stretch, lean into the tape. And that's what love is meant to do. He's saying not just love, but have a love that's stretchy. A stretchy love. And that's what love does, right? Love gets stretched. That's how it works. Love over time gets tested and tested. And it stretches and it deepens and it grows when it gets stretched. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? Uh, married couples, right? You be, uh, uh, it's, it's, uh, the honeymoon, right? That's love. But over time, you live with this person. And year after year, it's gone from that honeymoon. But it's stretched. It's been stretched. And now the love is of a deeper and higher quality. Isn't it? Everybody knows that. Be- best friends. Take, take, take your best buddy. When you first meet a best friend, it's, it's, it's the craziest thing. You move to a new town. You meet a best friend. You're like, there is nothing wrong with this human being. I have found a perfect human. Right? And you binge on him. You know, you want to hang out all the time. It's great. And then over time, what do you realize? Well, they've got flaws, and they're not perfect, but I love them. What happened? Love got stretchy. It grows, and it deepens, and it's beautiful, and it's valuable. We even going to talk about kids? Isn't love stretchy? Someone has said that a toddler steps on your feet, and a teenager steps on your heart. But what happens? Love stretches, doesn't it? Stretches. God's love is stretchy. And you know what it does when it stretches? It covers, look at the rest of this verse. It covers a multitude of sins, doesn't it? Is that not the truth? Is that not the truest thing I've ever written? Isn't that exactly what love does? Love just covers a multitude of sins. It, it, it's like where there is love, so much just gets forgiven. So much stuff, you just let it go. When two people love each other, they just let it go. When, when friends love each other, when Christian brothers and sisters love each other, think about it. So many harsh words are just forgotten. Why? Because there's love. So many failures are forgiven. Why? Because there's love. Love really does. It just kind of covers over a multitude of sins. You say, man, they did that, they did that. I know. (laughs) I love them, right? Love does that. And you know, the opposite is true, isn't it? When there's not love in a relationship, when you've got the lenses by which you are viewing someone in a relationship, some of you have these lenses on right now, and I'm praying the Lord convicts you, because I know uh, there's times and seasons in my life we all wear them, right? And you've got these lenses, and when there's not love, when there's not love, it magnifies a multitude of sins. When you've got the lenses that this person is against me and there's no love here, when there's no love in that relationship, it becomes a lose-lose every day. What do I mean by that? When they do wrong, when they sin, normally you would just let it go. But now you've got these lenses on, and it, like, picks up on that sin, and it highlights it, and it aggravates you to no end. And you go, yeah, it's just like them. Nah, it's just like them. That fits the narrative that I've got for them. It's a lose-lose. So when they do bad, it magnifies their sins. And here's the worst part. It's lose-lose. And when they do good, instead of going, oh, they did good that time. When they do something good, you've got these lenses on. What do you immediately think? I wonder what their angle is. I wonder what's... I wonder what they're... What are they really... What are they really after? Uh, it could have just been they did a good thing for the glory of God. Nah, nah, no. No, they got something up their sleeve. They're working some angle. Every good deed is mistrusted and every bad deed is magnified. Why? Because there's no love. But when there's love, love covers a multitude of sins. So... Peter goes on, right, pray, love, love with a stretchy kind of love. And then Peter goes on to give a very specific, very concrete example of this kind of earnest love. It's in verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. How to prepare for the end of the world? Pray, love, and thirdly, be hospitable. See? Pray, love, be hospitable. That one has an asterisk. We'll get to that in a second. Now think about this. There are no, no church buildings. Uh, when Peter wrote this, you got that right, uh, Peter's church had no church buildings. And so when the fellowship met together, they had to, uh, be give, somebody had to be given over to hospitality uh, because where else are you going to meet? So you got a bunch of Christians meeting in your home. On top of that, you had traveling missionaries and apostles and evangelists. And they could either stay in the flea-ridden dens of iniquity or some Christian could open up their home. But these weren't wealthy Christians. It wasn't like stay in my vacation home or stay in my, you know, I've got an attic above the garage or I've got, I've got a guest room or whatever, all this space. Many of them were very poor. So it was like, well, uh, if the traveling evangelist is coming through town, somebody's got to host them. Everybody looks down at the ground, right? Because nobody's got any room. And bread is expensive and you got to feed them. You know how preachers eat? And you got to feed them. And here so, it, well, I'll do it. And and the kids are like, oh, you did not, you did not. Because the kid knows. No kid in the ancient Near East is going to be told, now you sleep in this bed and let the traveling evangelist get the floor. No, who gets the floor, right? And so these kids had to be hospitable. Everybody had to learn how to make space and be hospitable. And start and think about this. Christians are beginning to be persecuted in Rome at this at this time, and so the the apartments, you know, the landlords wouldn't rent to these Christians. They were seen as uh, scourges on society, and so they're being discriminated against in housing. And suddenly they're being out on the streets, and now and some are being ostracized by their families because of their newfound faith in Christ. So you got these Christians that are homeless. Well, who's going to take them in? Other Christians. Now, the, okay um th- what's the asterisk here be hospitable and the asterisk is be hospitable without grumbling why because if you begin using your home in this way you have to imagine the ancient near east stuff is going to get broken stuff is going to get stained and that's why it adds without grumbling if you've never been tempted to grumble maybe it's because we haven't been quite as hospitable as god wants us to be can you imagine the ancient church and people being persecuted and forced out of their homes? I mean, some of you are in a Sunday school class that's a great delight and you love that class. But imagine being told that 14 members of that Sunday school class need to stay with you for the next two or three years. Right? You'd be tempted to grumble. Peter says do it without grumbling. Why? Because when you're tempted to grumble, you've got to stop and remember. Uh, some things, if you Radically, radically hospitable. If you show hospitality, you ho- you're hosting people. Stuff's going to get broken, uh, stuff's going to get uh, 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 stained. Uh, uh, you're going to be inconvenienced, but you need to remember the most, the, world, the most important thing in the world. The most important thing in the world. The most important thing in the world is not a thing. People are more important than things. So use your stuff and love the people. Don't ever love your stuff or you'll end up using the people. Does that make sense? Use things and love people. Don't ever use people and love things. It's not wrong to have nice things. It's not wrong to take care of your things. But don't ever forget that people are more important than things. And so hospitable. Uh, I'm going to challenge you on this. I want you to apply this. H- have someone in your home. Do it this week. You say, well, it's not convenient. It's ah, th- 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 That's grumbling. Okay. You say, well, I, you know, but I don't really have space. Ah, that's grumbling. It's okay. God to provide. Have, have somebody in your home. Have some hospitality. Break some bread together. Have a meal. What do I mean by that? When you sit down a meal with somebody, and I mean put away the phones and put away all that stuff, and just talk, it doesn't have to get deep, it certainly can, often it does. When Christians get together, they know the love of God and what God's done in their life. They often talk about the goodness of God, but you don't have to. Just get together and share your story a little bit, and when you listen to someone share their story, and you actually listen, when you've got a little bit of space to actually listen to someone, do you know how healing that is? Nobody's got anybody to listen to their story right now. They don't have it. You don't have it. But you can listen to one another. You break bread together. Do you realize the therapeutic power, the healing power, the restorative power of hospitality? That can heal broken marriages. That can heal and restore friendships. That can heal fractured relationships. Hospitality is emotionally healing. Don't believe me? then why do they call them hospitals? Same word. You ever think about that? We got the word hospital from hospitality. We think of southern hospitality as, come in, let me get you an RC and a moon pie. That's wonderful. Don't ever change that. But the heart of hospitality is, I will sacrifice to make space for you whether it's scooching in at a a, a church service to make space or whether it's making sure the newcomer in my Sunday school class feels welcome. It's radical hospitality. It's costly, but it's healing. And somebody said, we should call our places of physical healing that. And they did, and they're hospitals, but it comes from hospitality. And I believe our hospitals were full during COVID because of the great physical toll it was taking on people. But now our homes need to be full because of the emotional toll that it's taken on people. And it has affected you and me in ways we don't even know. So let's make our homes places of emotional hospitality, emotional hospitals, one for another. Just being friendly, inviting in, and going to someone's home, accepting an invitation. See? I'm going to challenge you to that. You can do that. Spiritual healing. What a great way to prepare for the end of the world. Finally, Peter concludes... Encouraging his people to use their gifts. Look at verses 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, and if you are a born again believer, you've received a spiritual gift. Some of you have multiple gifts. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. One day, one day, I hope, uh, here at Coleman First Baptist, maybe it'll be years from now, but I hope one day to come back to 1 Peter because I'm leaving so much on the table. But I'd like to preach a sermon on God's varied grace, a full technicolor display of grace, a grace for every need. The points just write themselves. But it's not this sermon, so we've got to stay focused. But one day. <laughs> Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. How to prepare for the end of the world? Pray, love, be hospitable, exercise your gifts. Operate, in other words. What does he mean by exercise your gifts? Operate in such a way. Look carefully at verses 10 and 11. Go back to those. Operate in such a way that God, not you, gets the glory when people are served. Uh, he gives two examples. And I love how in the New Testament, they never, they're never so bold to give an exhaustive catalog of spiritual gifts. At no point are they like, and here are all the spiritual gifts, these and no others. He'll mention a few. Paul will mention a few in 1 Corinthians. He'll mention a few in Romans. Peter mentions speaking and serving. But I think their point is, look, it's not important that you can identify perfectly your spiritual gift. What's important is whether you speak or whether you serve, you do it in such a way that God gets the glory. So he deals with speakers and servers. Let me talk first to the speaker. Um, uh, To those of you who speak, preach, teach. To the talkers. I got quiet uh i um uh, i want to ask you one question and there's a severe word of warning for us for we who are the talkers who gets the glory from what you say is it you or is it god that's his word of warning um i uh I've been there by way of confession. I've been there. This one is particularly convicting to me. Anytime you get up to speak, maybe you've felt this, there's always this temptation to impress, you know, to sound smart. I don't want to sound smart. I just want to be funny, you know. (laughs) You know. And uh, A.W. Tozer talks about this. He talks about instead of what, what the oracles of God are the plain truth of God. I know there's a lot of people that are, that are afraid to speak up in Sunday school or they're afraid to be, God's calling you to speak, but a lot of times you're silent because you well, I don't have anything to offer. I just speak the plain truth of God. I just, you know, I read this and I see it and I say it. That's literally what he's calling you to do. And I have been there and it is uh, a shameful feeling, it is a convicting feeling, but I'll preach at some conference somewhere and I will really, I'll sit down and I think, boy, I shelled the corn. You know, I just, that's an old, Kentucky preachers out in the country used to say that. And uh, I'd sit down and i think, boy, I really showed off a great deal of knowledge and this point was so clever. And um, uh, people will even tell me, uh, whoa, whoa, that, that was a great sermon. And then the person after me that was speaking at this conference, uh, they're not a trained speaker. They're not a, they don't know anything about rhetoric. They just got up there and told about uh, how they were sick, but God healed them, and how they were lost, but God found them. And he sat down. <clears throat> and it always strikes me, <laughs> they came and told me what a great uh, sermon it was, but um, uh, they came and told this person how great their God So it's like, you know, are you bringing glory like, hey, what a great speech, or what a great God, see? And just to clear up any awkwardness, after the 8 a.m. service, kind folks came by and shook my hand. They were like, we don't know what to say to you. I'm we- <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I know. I-, <laughs> I love you. I- <laughs> uh, the point is not that you can't uh, uh, share what gift is given you. It's just that the gift has to be like in service to uh, glorify God. And, and, and I think the message might also be for those who are not speakers, as one who speaks oracles of God. If you, if, you've, if, you, if you understand something from Scripture and you're sitting there in Sunday school and they say, anybody got a comment, I really think you should speak. I think that's a word for you. Um, servants, those who tend to serve, they have a more subtle uh, temptation to fall into. And most people who serve say something like this, I don't want to be up in front of everyone. I want to be in the background. And that's a subtle temptation because often uh, what they mean is you guys need dependence on God and, and the preachers need to pray for dependence on God and his strength. We in the background, we're just collecting the offering or, 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 or ushering or greeting or, 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 or preparing uh, these things or preparing lessons for children or whatever it is. We just need to roll up our sleeves and get the job done. Ah, be careful. It says whoever serves has to serve by the strength that God supplies. So always remember that your, your servant is just as dependent on the Lord. Could you do what you're doing without God's help? Ask him for help. Ask him to serve in the strength the Lord supplies. And if you say, well, I'm not really serving anywhere. I don't have the strength. Well, then, but God supplies that strength. Okay. Pray, love, be hospitable without grumbling, and exercise your gifts. Got it? Uh. The conclusion is in the last part of verse 11. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And now we've come back to where we started. Does that phrase forever and ever move you? Uh, That phrase means eternity. And as I said, we are all one heartbeat from forever and ever. So where is your comfort this morning? is going to come and help us as we have a time of response and we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. Let me ask you this question. Are you comforted as you think about end time prepping? Hmm? I don't know about you. I am not comforted to think of a spider hole in light of eternity. That's not where my comfort is. I'll tell you where my comfort is. My comfort is hidden in that wonderful little word, Dominion. Can we go back to that verse? That word dominion. Now, our English word dominion, you see that? To him belong glory and dominion forever. Um, Fun facts about Latin. Dominion comes from dominus. It means master of the household. Dominus comes from Greek and Latin both. It's the same word. We get the word domestic, domicile. The word is domus, and it means home. So dominion means one who has mastery over the home. But it really all comes back to home. Isn't that what we're all searching for when it comes to prepping for the end of all things? It's what I'm looking for. I just want an eternal home. And that is the good news for every Christian. And that's what we're going to look at when we partake of the Lord's Supper here in just a second. G- get, get your brain around this for a second. W- w- prepping, when it comes to prepping, end-time prepping, the great news of the gospel is prepping is ultimately not something I can do. It's been done for me. The master of the house has prepped for me. You say, how do you know that? Where do you get that? Jesus himself told his disciples in John 14, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Look at verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And what? The ultimate prepper. I go to prepare a place for you. If he went to prepare a place for me, he's got my name on it, my reservation's all set. He said, I'm going to come back for you. See? Would you hold the elements in your hand this time? It takes a little, love. they can be a little finicky, so just begin peeling back that top, that clear layer contains the a little wafer representing the bread. If you, uh, if you can just peel the top layer off, you'll leave the cup exposed. If you peel both, that's no problem at all. Just have somebody hold the cup while you separate the uh, the bread. <laughs> Don't rush. We've got all the time. Don't worry. But you should you should be able to hold this in your hand when you've got it when you've got it ready. You should be able to hold the the bread in your hand. And we're going to look at some scripture verses, and then we're going to partake of this together. Um, you know, your place at his table, this is an amazing thing. You didn't have a reservation automatically. Since the fall, since Adam and Eve first sinned, sin entering into the heart of every person except Jesus. You know, the the um, the, uh, the fact is, this reservation was not guaranteed. You had a spot reserved, but your spot reserved was... To die as a criminal separated from God and to spend eternity apart from God in hell. Jesus' spot was at the Father's banqueting table. See, that's what he deserved from all eternity. But here's what happened. Here's what happened. At the cross, Jesus took the place that was reserved for us so that we might have his seat at his Father's table. See, he stretched out his arms and died on that Roman cross. He took our place. Death is a criminal apart from God. So that we could have His place and have access to God the Father. That's what He means. That's what's behind that. That's the cost that's hidden in that dominion that He's preparing a place for us. Now, I'd like us to pray and to ponder what I just said. To think deeply. You have been invited not by any man's invitation. You are taking this today because the Lord Himself has invited you to His table. It's His table. He can invite who He wants. And so I want to give us a little bit of space. I'm going to bow our heads. We're going to give a little bit of space. I'm going to ask you to examine yourself. Ask the Holy Spirit to examine you. Draw near to Him. Tell Him you love Him. Thank Him for the cross. Picture His body broken for you and in your place. And think about His love for you. Father, thank you that you know every single heart in this place, inside and out. God, for anyone walking in pride right now, humble us. For anyone who's walking under condemnation, they're walking under guilt and fear and shame. As they hold this symbol in their hand, let them picture your body bearing every shame and your precious body bearing every condemnation and every bit of guilt and punishment for sin. And let them see it absorbed fully in you out of love that they can leave it in the grave and walk in freedom and walk in newness of life and feel the. Let them feel like they're walking on air when they leave this place, knowing that you have paid it all. Let us. God, call to the very forefront of our minds. Give us the ability to bring to the very forefront of our minds your broken body for us. The Bible says, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And church, at this time, do this in remembrance of Jesus Christ. Take some time now to prepare the cup. By peeling back that second layer, you should be able to reveal the juice. Just hold it in your hand when you're ready. Look at it. Ponder it. Take your time. There's no hurry. This is time between you and the Lord. it's, It's also time between all of us and the Lord a special time, united. The Lord's Supper makes us feel close to God. It makes us feel close to each other. It should. When you've got the cup prepared, let's do the same thing. Let's bow our heads and let's just have a little sacred space here. A little time. Confess sin. Examine ourselves, Tell Him you love Him. And rest in His grace. Listen for Him. Bible says in the same way, also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Church, do this in remembrance of Jesus. Bible says that the huh. first time they did this, the disciples sang a hymn before they went out, and we carry on that tradition. verse of Amazing Grace, but here's the part that's been missing uh, for the past year. Typically, before COVID, we would not only stand and sing Amazing Grace, but you would like